This morning, we are in chapter 15, as we uh, have been walking through uh, small portions, big portions of the Gospel of John. Uh, just to kind of give a little uh, context a little bit, is uh, for the last several chapters in John, uh, Jesus, in the timeline of his life and ministry uh, leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, this is the period in which is probably within 24, 36 hours of his uh, crucifixion, as far as where we find ourselves in John. We kind of find that as we compare it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow more of a, of a little bit more of a timeline uh, of Jesus' life. John is kind of concerned about some big themes uh, that he's wanting to present. So uh, we can kind of get that timeline when we compare all the four Gospels together. And what strikes me as we, uh, look at, as we, as we looked in chapter 14 and 15 and, and some of the words of Jesus, keep in mind the disciples are already jacked up because, one, Jesus is talking about that he's going to die. That wasn't what they signed up for. Remember, they bought into, like that generation, the concept that the Messiah was a political uh, revolutionary leader who was going to restore Israel back to its glory of King David. And uh, Rome is the one who has basically colonized Palestine at this point. They're having to pay uh, ridiculous taxes and have the threat of of Rome to come in and, and control their lives. And so it's a very stressful time in Israel in this first century. And so leading up to that, there's all, there was great anticipation that at this time uh, that there would be the coming of this Messiah that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, anticipation. But over time, their concept of Messiah uh, moved away from the scriptural picture and uh, to, again, seeing this person as more of a political, military-type figure that was going to lead Israel back to its uh, glory. And so here you have the disciples who, for three and a half years, they've uh, temporarily left their jobs, families. I mean, they've embarked and bought into the vision of what Jesus was saying, his teaching. And so here he's talking about dying. That isn't what they anticipated. And not only is he talking about dying, but he also told them uh, that one among those 12 is going to betray, not just me, but is going to betray us uh, and is going to sell us out. And so naturally they're trying to look and figure out who, who that would be. So this is a very down time for the followers of Jesus. This is a very stressful time. They... Uh, they know the tension that's leading and been building up to uh, the authorities against Jesus. And what strikes me in chapter 15 and 14 and uh, this section, uh, really through chapter 16 as well, but what strikes me here is what Jesus does and how he chooses to encourage his disciples. Remember, Jesus knows his hour is coming. He knows the moment, the nanosecond, he knows everything. He's known it in advance. And yet, what does he choose to do when he's meeting with his disciples? He doesn't say probably what you and I would say would be, 
boys, quit whining. I'm the one that's going to die. What are you whining about, right? I'd be like, hey, <laughs> I'm the one that's going to be arrested. and I'd be kind of focused on me. But Jesus doesn't do that. He uses this, this opportunity to give words of strength, of encouragement, and that's where we find ourselves here. Um, and uh, it's not on the screen, but John 13, 1 says that he loved his disciples till the, to the end. I'm glad that Jesus loves us to the end, right? He doesn't give up on us, right? Whatever, there is no end in the kingdom. But, but So the disciples are troubled, and Jesus gives some words that are, again, words that kind of strike me as unusual. Remember, he's within 36 hours or less of facing death. You know, in the timeline, the Jewish authorities wanted to rush the kind of the kangaroo court and the fake, the phony trial to get him crucified before Passover. Uh, and so there is this tension going on. The disciples know the word on the street that they're coming, there's pressure. And uh, Jesus chooses, instead of giving him words, instead of giving words to his disciples, uh, knowing that the end is near, at least in the end of Jesus' ministry among them, you might would think that he would meet with them and say, all right, boys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into hiding. We're going to go into underground. Uh, John and James, you got your background of being a zealot, so you got some connections to get us some weapons and uh, get us some knives, and, get, and we're going we're gonna to create a... Sab, we're going to sabotage, and uh, this movement's going under, underground, and we're going to start subverting the Romans and the Jewish authorities, and we're going we're to begin to kind of lead this underground revolution. He didn't do that. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't give them a strategy of saying, all right, guys, you need to, you need to get out of here. Here, here. You need to take the money, and you need to flee. You need to flee for your life. He doesn't do anything like that. Instead, you know what he does? He gives them some words of expectation and hope. Kind of not what you would expect. I mean, just we'll read it more into it later, but in John 15, verses 4 through 7, very familiar, I'm sure, to most of us, Jesus says, in the middle of all this tension, He says, abide in Me and I in you. And then he talks about the branch, and then he says in verse 7, if you skip down to that, he said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. And they're like, ask what we desire. We desire that you not die. We desire that we survive. That we th I mean, what are you talking about abiding and asking what you desire? And it's like Jesus is speaking as though this is not the end. It's just the beginning, Right? He's telling his disciples about how they can remain and abide and flourish in their relationship, not only that's going to change with him, but in the sense with, this, with the Heavenly Father. Jesus says, be fruitful. And as he said in John 14, 1, I know you're troubled, but believe in God. Okay, believe in God, great, but what are we going to do? No. Believe in God. Trust in God. All right, well, give me something practical. That is practical. Have faith in God. Have trust in God. I mean, that's what he's been telling them the whole way through. Here's a, this is just all introduction. And you have your uh, listener's guide. This is not in there. This is free. Not even going to charge you this morning for this. 
But here's just a little principle that as I was going through this, reading this, that the Lord just kind of just, I think, opened up here. And here's the principle, is that sometimes when we are up against the wall in crisis or trouble, the Lord will very often give us an unexpected word, an unexpected word of an unexpected spiritual strategy. Remember, what he tells them is not what they expected or really what they thought they wanted to hear. Jesus is saying, things are far from over. In fact, you're going to flourish. and In fact, you're going to abide in me. What do you mean abide? You just said you're going to die. How do we do that? Sometimes when we face and feel like the walls are coming around us, isn't it interesting? Sometimes the Lord's strategy is not exactly what we think should be done. Sometimes it's the very opposite. But Jesus loves dealing in opposites, doesn't he? Remember when Jesus said, hey, those enemies you have, bless them. Wait a minute, we want to kill them. We want to do harm. What do you mean, bless them? That's not expected. Uh, You have a need, give, and it shall be given unto you. What? What is that all about? Remember in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, in the middle of don't worrying about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, and all those things, Jesus said, hey, hey, don't chase after those things like unbelievers do. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God, if you're listening to the word of the Lord, you're communing and having that relationship in prayer, oftentimes the strategy and direction the Lord moves you into is usually an unexpected strategy that God has, has purpose for your life. And that what is our job? Our job is to listen and follow. Our job is to say, Jesus, I kind of think you know more about what's going on than I do. And even though that seems to be counterintuitive to what I should do, see, what they wanted to do is they wanted to figure out how they're going to survive. Jesus is talking about, I'm not talking about surviving. He said, I'm talking about abiding. I'm talking about flourishing, but it's going to be different. It's going to look different. And so this morning is kind of that is just a little backdrop. I want you to look with me at four principles in John 15. We're not going to tear every verse apart, but these are just some principles. I like when, and I've tried to do this more, because when you look in the Word of God and you begin to look for principles that you can apply to your life, you know what that does? That immediately connects Scripture to your life, okay? Here's, here's the principle here. Maybe the context is different, maybe the situation, but here's a principle that I can immediately engage and connect my life to the Word of God. And I find that, to me personally, helpful. And this morning, I want us to look at four of those. But before we do, let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing over the Word this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for the Word. Thank you for, Lord, the the wonderful worship. Thank you for Melissa, God, not I, but Christ. Lord, thank you for lifting our hearts today. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Number one, abiding. And the title of the message is Abiding in Christ. And and I don't know why, but it's just maybe this is the way I looked at it, is how to move out of spiritual mediocrity. Now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but spiritual mediocrity 
affects all believers at some time where you just, you just feel like you're not thriving, you're not moving forward, you're just, you're just on cruise control, you're just, you just feel a, me, a mediocre, routine-ish way of, of walking in, with the Lord, and you just kind of, it's almost like you're doing some things out of habit or routine, and there's no sense of life, it's just mediocre. And I don't know about you, but there's times that I need to get shaken and, and snap out of my spiritual mediocrity. Yeah, pastors fall into spiritual mediocrity too. Guess what? I drink the same water, live on the same earth, same world that you do. And so this morning, I think we can look at this sense of abiding in Christ. That's kind of a, a word we're not sure how, what, how, to, how to pull that apart, abiding. But, but look at it in the context of saying, how can I abide in Christ? And by abiding in Christ... I can, I can move out of just this spiritual mediocrity where I'm just kind of mailing it in. How many of you under, at least, your, you know your neighbor needs this today? Huh? Can you, you know, everybody, can, can anybody relate besides me about that spiritual mediocrity? It doesn't mean you're backslidden, you're not a believer, but you're just, it, you know, you're just going through the motions sometimes. Well, notice these four principles in John 15. I'm sure there's more, but I knew you wanted to get out of here before 2 o'clock, so we got, we got four this morning. Abiding in Christ, number one, means, and here just made them applicable, is that my life is to be marked by a healthy and growing relationship with God. My life is to be marked or characterized by a healthy and growing relationship with God. Look at verse 1 through 6. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The gardener, we might say. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and it is withered and they Gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Notice the picture that the Lord is giving here. And you know, Jesus, uh, he loves giving word pictures. You know, he talks about the sower. You know, the kingdom of God is like the, the man who went out and sowed seed, or he talks about being the door. He loves giving word pictures here. And how does he picture the Father, okay? The Father, how does he picture him? He pictures him as a, as a gardener that we have been planted in the garden of God. Think about the, the picture of that, being planted in the garden of God, that God has sovereignly placed us and planted us in His garden, if you will. Remember Jesus said in John 15, 16, He said, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, I know enough about landscaping to how effectively kill most living things. All right, that's about it. 
But I do know this. Nobody goes to plant a tree, a shrub, or uh, anything and says, you know, I've spent this money to plant this, this tree or this bush, and I'm really, I'm really hoping this thing dies in about a week. I just want to sit and watch it die. You, you do it in hopes, right, that you want to see this thing thrive and flourish and grow fruit. I, I told you the story. I remember I was a little guy, maybe four and a half or so, and I remember my dad planted a peach tree, and he was so proud of this peach tree in the backyard. And sure enough, there started to be one little, one little peach that was starting to, to just blossom, bud or whatever, grow. And guess who had to go out there and yank and pick that piece of fruit? Me. He was so ticked off, like, you know, I mean, he was, that, you know, you want it to grow, you want to nourish it. So the Lord gives this picture of being one who is a tender gardener who takes care and attention. I drive around, maybe your yards are like this, and you can see people who spend a lot of time and money, and that's why they have a beautiful yard. They got green, beautiful grass, no brown spots. No, I mean, they're, everything's trimmed and looks good. Why? Because they care for that. It doesn't just happen. When things are unattended, what happens? It just grows crazy and wild. And so God is pictured as a, as a gardener. But notice the promise. He says, abide in me, and I in you, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. You see the, the connection. You want fruit, it's got to be connected to the root. You with me? You may not be able to, you can look at a tree and oftentimes at the fruit or lack of determine or make a pretty good guess at the health of the root. Jesus says, verse 5, I am the vine. That's where the life source is. And you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now, I know there's fruity Christians, and I'm not talking about that. But he uses this metaphor of fruit. It, it, remember, this is an agricultural world, aggregate world. And, and so fruit bearing, like harvest and seed sowing, they could relate to that because that was a picture of productivity, that was, a that was a picture of growth. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, the blessings of the Lord are also are often equated in terms of blessings of harvest and plenty. You get it? So he's giving this picture, a metaphor of something that's growing. And by the way, when you plant something, unlike maybe Jack and the Beanstalk, uh, you know, you run out the next morning, and guess what? There's probably not going to be anything there. When something is planted, what does it have to do? It has to grow. And how, you know what? That takes time. You know, there's no such thing as instantaneous microwave Christianity. It's grown. It's nourished. It's developed. So lots of pictures there. But here's what's important. Is that God plants us in His garden. And He is the gardener. He is the vine dresser. Uh, the version the New King James says. And he says that there must be this connectivity. But don't miss this principle that I think is true throughout the Word of God. And it is this, is that God never creates anything that He has not purposed that it would produce and grow. It is God's very nature. He hasn't saved you and I for us to just be dormant and mediocre, right? 
All right, two of you agree with that. Some of you are not sure. He is not, listen, God expects things to flourish and grow. That's what he does. In the garden, Genesis 2, when he told Adam and Eve, and he put them in where? A garden, right? And he said, I want you to be what? Fruitful and multiply and take what? Dominion. Take control. Remember the parable of the talents? He gave some, you know, ten talents, whatever. But then they gave one individual one talent. And Jesus giving this picture of a kingdom principle of reproduction, he, he, he encouraged, he's encouraged by those who took that talent, let's say it was a, a money, and they invested it, they got a return on it. But what did he do when he came and he went to the one person who only had one talent or one dollar or whatever it is, and he did nothing. He hid it. He, he, he hid it because he said, I was fearful and I was afraid to lose it and so I didn't invest it. What did he say? I did not produce anything. I took that investment and I just sat on it. And you know, it's interesting in that parable, you can read it over in, uh, not now, but Matthew 25, Jesus calls that individual, or using the picture of the Lord in this, the, the master, he says, wicked servant. He says, wicked and lazy. You get the point? God has not saved you, given his son to die for you, filled you with the Holy Spirit, invested you and resourced you with all the blessings in Christ, Ephesians 1 says, for you just to kind of live a so-so, mediocre, non-productive, just get me through the gate of heaven and call it a day. That isn't the way God has designed it. God is a capitalist. Have you realized that? He expects a return on his investment. Now, some of you think, oh, what? Isn't that what a cat, I mean, isn't that what capitalism's all about? You make an investment of your labor, your time. I mean, God plants and he expects you and I and things to produce by his investment. But there's a prerequisite that is essential, and that's in verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, abide in me, in me. He says, unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me. For without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. You see the connection there? And you see all of these principles that Jesus is talking about here, they are only going to be fruitful and productive to the individual who is in Christ. The Bible calls that being born again. You might say being saved, giving your life, surrendering your life to Christ, all different ways, but it's the person who has given their life to Christ that they are dependent. See, we kind of have this independency streak. That's why some of you never call upon anybody to help you. Because you don't want to be, you know, I can do it, I can do it. And eventually you call the repairman to fix what you could do, right? No, Jesus has made us, redeemed us to be dependent. 
upon him. Without me, you can do nada. Nada. Nothing. You can't do anything. But it involves abiding in me. It implies a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that all throughout Scripture. In Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Where do we get the blessings of salvation? In Christ. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. It's being in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, Christ. He or she is a new creation. You see, being in Christ means that I have given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come into my life not to be my co-pilot. He's come in to be my Lord and to rule and reign in my life. He doesn't do co-piloting anything. He doesn't co-anything. He's master, Lord, right? And so, if you want your life to move out of unfruitful mediocrity, it begins by being born again. And even as born-again believers, we need to be recalibrated back to the truth that it's in Christ that I can spend all my energies and time, and I'm not growing in my relationship with Christ. So the first principle is that my life is to be marked by a healthy and growing relationship with God. Here's, here's, a, here's another little side truth that is quite obvious, is that healthy things generally grow. Healthy churches don't need smoke and mirrors and gimmicks to grow because if they are healthy, healthy in the sense that they're honoring the Lord, they're preaching the Word, they're seeing people brought to Christ, they're seeing people developed in their giftings to honor Christ and to go into the world and, and be, the way, to be the ones that God has established to, to advance the kingdom. I mean, if a church is healthy, if a plant is healthy, I mean, look, some of us have gone out of our way to try to kill plants. And because it was so healthy, it refused to die. Why? Because it was healthy. Healthy things grow. And we are called to be marked by a healthy. And if it's healthy, it's going to grow. Secondly, abiding in Christ means, secondly, is that my life is to glorify God and to be a blessing to others. If I want to abide in Christ, what does that mean? My life is to glorify God and be a blessing to others. Look at verse 7 and talking about glorify God. Jesus said, if you abide in me, and he repeated this, he said this earlier back in chapter 14. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. The Bible calls this kind of shorthand. This is what prayer is. Prayer is having a relationship where I talk to God and God talks to me. It's an ongoing living relationship. That's all prayer is. If you want to grow in a relationship with somebody, here's two essentials you need to have. Time and communication. Right? If you want to get to know somebody, you've got to invest the time and be willing to communicate. And so prayer is, in its basic form, part of the growing relationship. 
And it's interesting, as we'll look at this in a minute, that that is tied into the glorifying God. But let's just hang on to this sense of prayer. And I like something that uh, Pat Robertson said in his book, The Secret Kingdom. And the quote is in your blue handout that I have it written out there. You can follow along. Pat Robertson says this, talking about salvation. Salvation, in salvation, God has entered into a partnership with redeemed man. He has given us the potential of cooperating with His Spirit in the whole work of the kingdom. Prayer is the link between finite man and the infinite purposes of God. In its ultimate sense, it consists of determining God's will and then doing it on earth. It does not consist merely of asking for what we want. To pray in the truest sense means to put our lives into total conformity with what God desires. We begin this process by dropping our own preconceived ideas and entering into His presence by grace to wait upon Him. Our thought should be, quote, Lord, what do you want? What are you doing? Isn't that what Henry Blackaby teaches us in The Experiencing God? You want to find the will of God? Well, find out what God's doing and get in on what He's doing. See, that's the opposite of what we do. We're like over here, hey, God, come and get involved in my agenda. No, we are saved to be productive to be in on His agenda. And prayer helps us. So prayer involves a relationship and implies a relationship. This abiding is, is talking about relationship. There's no secret sauce here other than being in Him. It involves requesting. Yeah, that's a part of prayer. It involves receiving. But here's the thing about God's glory. It involves also this relationship of asking. It involves reflecting. Yes, requesting, receiving. But it reflects God's glory. Where do you get that? Look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Verse 8, by this, by this, what is this? What he just said in verse 7. My father is what? So that means God is glorified when I am asking and receiving. And he says, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. How is God glorified is that God is glorified when He wants and, and functions in a way that blesses His people. But see, that blessing is not a selfish blessing. It's not a self-centered blessing. Because remember, it's being in Christ. Jesus said whatever, and didn't He say that over in uh, chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, that whatever you ask in My name, My name, that's the key. What does he say? When you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be what? Here it is again, glorified. So prayer and this relationship that, is, that God invites us into, God is glorified when he is meeting the needs of his children. Now let me just ask this in the natural, as a parent. If you heard that Tim and Sherry's kids 
are living in abject poverty. Kids are, I mean, their kids are being taken by whatever, DHS, whatever they, you know. And you heard that they are struggling just to make the next meal. How would you think about Sherry and I? What would you think about us? Now, don't say it. You're in church. You get what I'm saying? But if, as a parent, that my children, that I'm in a place of blessing them, helping them, you know, they have needs in life, just as though I've had needs in my life, and my parents helped me. In other words, the Father is glorified when we reflect the blessing of God. Does that make sense? So our asking and our receiving and our expecting, that should be something that if we desire to glorify God, we should be anxious to come before the Lord and say, Lord, Father, here's my need. Glorify your name. And see, but again, the key is, Jesus says, if you ask in his name, that means... Whatever you're asking, can Jesus figuratively sign his name to that request? So if you're asking for a new spouse, eh, doesn't count. If you're asking for something that is a selfish motive or God to do harm to this it's not. No, in my name, what can Jesus put his name on? And God says, and the word of God says that will he do and verse 11 reminds us that this is this 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 abiding is not some drudgery it's not just duty look at verse 11 i have the amplified i believe up there the amplified just tries to expand a little bit of the in english what the greek and hebrew and john 15:11 jesus says i have told you these things that my joy and my delight may be in you god jesus The Lord takes delight when we are exercising our sonship relationship of being in Christ. That your joy and gladness may be, notice the words here in the Amplified that kind of gives us a way to understand the, the expansion of the Greek, may be of full measure, complete, overflowing. You get the idea? This is not mediocrity 101 Christianity. So not only does my relationship that requests and receives and reflects, but I'm also part of this abiding is that I'm called to be a blessing to other believers. What's the biggest blessing I can do and give to other believers is to love other believers, to love one another. That's what Jesus said, verse 12. This is my commandment, not my suggestion. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And certainly Jesus is thinking of what, of his love for his disciples. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. How is the abiding in Christ evidence? One way is not only reflected and that I'm that God I can depend on him to meet my every need 
but also in the fact that my evidence of this relationship is in my love for one another. Now, many of you have been around enough, some of you church, been in churches, whatever, and you know and I know that oftentimes, sometimes, in some churches, loving one another is not there. There's anger, there's hostility, there's resentment. Paul said when he was writing, I don't know if it was to the church at Corinth, he said, they, you know, talking about lawsuits, suing each other, taking each other to court. He said they shouldn't be. Jesus said something very important in John 13, 35. He said, by this, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what love does? Read 1 Corinthians 13. One of the, one of the truisms of love is it does not keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a scorecard. If you were here on that Wednesday and heard R.T. Kendall teaching on Joseph... Very timely. But I think maybe the Apostle John, who wrote what we call the Gospel of John, he also wrote 1 John. That's kind of a shorter letter that he wrote. And perhaps he had this very thing in mind when he wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, and I have it in the New Living Translation. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 1, 7, he says, but if we are living in the light, meaning as believers... As God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So see the connection that as we are walking in truth, that is going to be reflected in the nature of our relationships to each other. And then he goes to chapter 2 and says, If anyone claims, I am living in the light, meaning, I am a believer, but hates a fellow believer. The fact that John wrote this implies that it is, it's not only a possibility, but it might even be a problem that he's addressing into the churches as this letter is written. I, he said, if anyone claims I'm living in the light, I'm living in the truth, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. So my life is to glorify God. If I want to be abiding in Christ, if I want to get out of this mediocrity, then I need to make sure that my life is built around a relationship that is depending and glorifying God in receiving, by requesting, receiving, reflecting God's glory, and that, that glory and that, that, that sense of relationship is reflected in the way that I love each other. It's reflected in my life in loving one another. Jesus said, love one another. Now notice thirdly, a third principle, abiding in Christ means, and it would be kind of nice if this was just skipped over because we don't like this, but listen, remember who he's talking to and where he's at, thirdly, 
Abiding in Christ means that I will face opposition if I seek to live a godly life. Jesus said, verse 18, if the world hates you, remember, he's talking about abiding, thriving. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You were of the world, past tense. The world would love its own. If, or he says, if you were of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, now he's not talking about being in the cosmos. We're in the world. We're not floating around in some, you know, whatever. He's just using world as a sense, as a term. The Bible uses the term world to speak of uh, the uh, unbelievers or the system that's built on uh, unbelieving and, and, and not godly principles. He said, if you were of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That be, he said, because I chose you, because you're with me, the world's going to hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He's saying, guys, don't be surprised. You want to follow me? You're going to get pushback. You're going to get persecution. You're going to get opposition. Jesus would say down in verse 25, look at this, very telling. But this happened, talking still about this persecution, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled. Jesus' death is, is foretold. What is written in the law, but notice this, is they hated me. It's a quote from one of the Psalms. I didn't write it down. Uh, your your uh, uh, reference uh, note should tell you what psalm this is from, but notice that they thought that was written in their law, it says they hated me without a cause. They hated Christ without a cause. So you're going to follow God. You're going to seek to have an abiding life. You're going to seek to have a relationship that is healthy and thriving and growing. Guess what, guys? You should expect opposition if you seek to live a godly life. Listen, it doesn't get any plainer than what Paul the Apostle told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. What does he say? He said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Will get a parade. Will get the first on the list of anything that's good. No, they will not just have persecution, but what does it say? suffer persecution. You see, the abiding and thriving in Christ does not negate us or exempt us from persecution or opposition. And let me just encourage you also in this, that just because you are facing opposition... And ultimately, we know where all opposition is derived from, right? We don't war against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against principalities, against spiritual hosts of darkness, right? And just because you are seeking to live a godly life and you're getting opposition, maybe from a spouse, maybe from a family, a job, whatever, that does not mean you're out of the will of God. Some people think, oh, this I can't be doing the right thing because... I wouldn't be getting pushback. I wouldn't be getting this persecution or opposition. No, the fact that you are seeking to live a godly life, according to what Paul said, you will write it down without a doubt. You are going to suffer 
opposition or persecution. Are we not seeing this today when those who want to uphold the sanctity of life and give a clear, unambiguous word that abortion is the murdering of a life that was made in the image of God? Are we not seeing people attacked? Free speech? Yeah, right. That cuts both ways for everybody. You stand for life. Who would have, many of us in our, many of our generation would have never thought the debate over abortion would be of such that the halls of Congress would be debating and trying to decide that the moment of viability to, to take that life can literally be up into the seconds and moments of that baby being born. Used to be called infanticide. If you stand up and speak for that, you're going to get opposition. You're going to get persecution. Are we not seeing this today when those who believe that marriage is ordained by God, that it's for a biological man and a biological woman, if you dare to speak and talk about godly biblical marriage, you might lose your job. Are we not seeing this today when parents confront school boards and public libraries and wonder why reading material that would have been illegal and pornographic 20 years ago is made readily available under the guise of we don't burn books as though anything goes, you will be persecuted. Are we not seeing persecution of believers today when parents do not want a man dressed as a woman reading their children books in a public library? Crazy thoughts. You ever feel like you woke up and Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone? Are we not seeing persecution and opposition to biblical values when a business owner who has convictions that are biblical refuses to be forced to use their business that they created, they invested with their money, to promote something that they believe violates their conscience before God, that they have First Amendment rights to? Listen, the list can go on and on and on. Right now in California, look it up, legislation, that if a parent refuses to advance their child in giving them hormone blockers and prevent them from transgendering, that the children can be taken by the state, that that would be considered abuse of parents. In California, right now. You see, the problem is a lot of Christians live with their head in the sand and have no clue. Let me tell you, let me tell you something. It is worse than you think. And we happen to live in a very conservative area. But it is worse than you think. Will Christians continue to face pushback and opposition if they seek to advance godly values and live a godly life? Yes, you will. And the last principle that binds it all together is that abiding in Christ means I depend on the Holy Spirit to help me, to help me 
live a fruitful and godly life. I'm not asked to do this on my own. I'm not asked to do this on my own resources. You know, it's interesting that this, the meat of this teaching is kind of, um, when, you, when you kind of step back from Scripture, it, it is kind of bookended by the Holy Spirit. That these words of expectation and encouragement and a, abiding and being in Christ, really, forget the chapters and the verse numbers. <coughs> Those were put in for literary helps years later. That isn't the way they wrote. But notice, if you back up to chapter 14, around verse 26, Jesus says, but the helper, John 14, 26, there's one bookend, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's one bookend. And then in the middle, you have this abiding in Christ and all the richness of of that resource relationship. And then you have another bookend in chapter 15, 26, where he says, And when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Right there in the middle of this abiding in Christ, what do you have? You have two bookends of the Holy Spirit. As though it's a big reminder that how do you do this? You do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Ephesians 5.18, I'll have them skip a few in the media booth there. But remember, being filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, it's not a one-time filling. According to Ephesians 5.18, it's interesting. Paul says, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. He says, but be filled. And really, the Greek, and I won't get into the, the grammar, it really speaks of keep being filled. Filled. It's not a one time, it is a continuous ongoing of being filled with the Holy Spirit. How much of the Holy Spirit do I need? I need it like the children of Israel needed that manna every day. Give us this day our daily bread. I need the work of the Spirit of God every day. How do I do that? I do it when I'm abiding and I'm asking, and I'm receiving, I'm requesting, I'm reflecting, when I'm in this growing, healthy relationship with the Lord. And on your outline, notice, and there's multiple things, but I just want to give you a few here of ways the Holy Spirit bears fruit in my life. And this is something we've talked about, the Holy Spirit, number one, this is in your handout, your outline, the Holy Spirit helps me to pray. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit helps you to pray? We don't all pray as we should. And sometimes we go to the Lord in prayer and we can't even put into words what is going on in our heart. But Romans 8.26 gives us a great truth. By the way, Romans 8 is all about the Spirit of God. In verse 26, Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit also what helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He takes my deepest desires, my deepest longings, some of those things I can't even articulate. And the Holy Spirit ensures and ushers that my prayer, my relationship is in alignment in Jesus' name. That's why we should be people that are praying in the Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit 
one of the fruits gives me the assurance of salvation. Some of you, not even sure you're saved. Sometimes when you ask people about their testimony, when they inquire about church membership, they can't articulate simple... And I'm not talking about asking about their propitiation of sins and atonement and the eschatological promises of the Messiah. I'm not talking about that kind of... I'm talking about, how do, you, do you know that you're a believer? And you don't know you're a believer because you walked the aisle and shot in the Armed Baptist Church during a VBS... And somebody said, now, you're saved. Don't ever question or doubt it. Don't ever doubt it. You've just kind of lived like the devil ever since. But hey, somebody told me, because I walked the aisle and I fell out the car and I shook the preacher's hand and I got wet, I'm saved. Maybe not. If there's no fruit, what does that tell me about the root? Something ain't right. Something is wrong. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. What's the tree? That's the outworking. That's the evidence. And so the Holy Spirit, notice Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. How do we get the assurance? The Holy Spirit gives us that assurance. The Holy Spirit evidences godly attributes in my life. This is oftentimes what we think of in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidences, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, or patience, kindness. I need some Christians just to be kind. Have you ever gone to eat with a quote-unquote Christian and the way they talk to the waitress? Remember that woman's event? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't her. Be kind. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there, against such there's no law. Holy Spirit builds and bears the fruits and evidences. And fourthly, the Holy Spirit builds. I love this. I never saw this before, but I think it's... Holy Spirit builds anticipation for the return of Jesus. What does he say? In, Paul says in Galatians 5.5, 5, For we, through the Spirit, what? Eagerly wait. For the hope of righteousness by faith. You say, well, I don't, I don't long for that. Ask the Holy Spirit. What, do you, what is he called? He's called the helper. It's not Angie's list. He's the helper. You call him for help. You ask for help. God has resourced you with his very presence. I want to show you something real quick. I know we're out of time, but that's all right. I think I've got a few minutes. I want you to go back and look at verse 2, John 15, 2. I read this, studied this a little bit, and I thought, wow, that is really, really important. And I want to leave you with this. John 15, 2. Jesus said, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, in most cases... In translation, now don't just bear with me. Well, we'll get on a little weeds here a little bit, but I hope it'll be worth it. You know that the New Testament is translated from the Greek, right? The Greek language that was the the language of the first century. Jesus spoke Aramaic, but it, but but when they wrote the letters, the Gospels, Greek was the we would call it the international language. That was the language that was used, and so the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And as I said, sometimes the Greek 
gives us uh, can is a little bit more specific and poignant uh, than the than the English. And so the Greek word that is that we use and in most of the versions that is used for he takes away. I have it highlighted in yellow. The Greek it's the Greek word arrow. Okay, not arrow like shooting an arrow with a bow, but a i r o arrow. And what's interesting is this word arrow has four basic meanings. It can be it can be translated in four different ways. And a lot of times what translators do, and we have the benefit of great translations, English translations, so we don't have to think about this kind of thing, is oftentimes when they come to a word, they'll see what's before it and after it, and kind of, if they're not sure, they'll go with the, uh, go back to the other verse, I don't want to go there yet, um, that they will see what the context and that'll help them or determine how they use which meaning of that word. Okay, you with me? So the Greek word is arrow, and it can, be tra- it can be used four different ways. It can be used to be used, translated, to lift up or pick up. That's one way. It can be used to lift up, kind of figuratively, like somebody lifts up their eyes or their voice. Uh, arrow can be used to lift up, meaning um, of lifting up in order to carry something away. I'm going to lift it up and take it away. Or it can be translated to remove or cut off. Now here's what's interesting. Of people way smarter than me. They made a a really interesting observation and said, you know, that may not be the best translation that we have to mean he takes away. Because when you think about the characteristic of the gardener, it, it seems to be inconsistent with the care of the gardener. Just stay with me. Now, in verse 6, we won't go there, but you can look at it in your Bible, he talks about every unproductive branch is cut off and burned and thrown away, right? And so they suggest that maybe they saw that coming and assumed that that was what we should use arrow to mean cut off, remove, tear away. But arrow, go to the next slide could legitimately be lifts up. Now notice how it changes the entire dynamic of that verse. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the gardener does what? Lifts up from the ground. You see, vines, there's some, uh, as I understand, that grapes, uh, they're not like squash or pumpkins that can thrive on the ground. Grapes have to be Lifted up, you know, vines, you know, they have to be height in order for them to flourish and grow. Now, here's my point. I have heard oftentimes, and, and maybe probably have used this, that at this point in the process of the picturing of the gardener tending to his garden that we are planted in, that what happens as he tends to our lives with grace and care it isn't that when the, we're not bearing fruit, it's like, okay, you've had your chance, we're going to cut you off and throw you away. I've heard people preach that way. Now, there is a place later in verse 6, but I'm not sure at verse 2 that's what he's talking about. Isn't it more consistent with a gardener who wants, who wants to make good on his investment and make sure he doesn't lose a crop? 
He's not going to just start ripping plants out and throwing them in the garbage. What's he going to do? If a vine has fallen on the ground where it can't produce fruit, what's he going to do? He's going to lift it up for it to flourish. All right, translate that to you and me. When he sees that we're not producing, we're mediocre, we're not thriving. It isn't walking around with some fear that he's got his hedge clippers and he's going he's gonna to come whack us. What does the gracious gardener do? He lifts us up. He puts us in a place where he can do what? In the natural, what's he going to do? He's going to give a little more attention to that vine. He's going to give a little more care, nutrients, water, making sure it's not being scorched, it's got the right sun, it's got the right atmosphere around it for it to do what? Remember, God is a expectant gardener who expects a return on his investment. He wants to see things grow and produce. What does he expect in one our life? He wants us to grow and flourish. In what? In him. Because that's how he's glorified. Does this make sense to anybody? So instead of fearing God, he's walking around with the hedge clippers because you have been kind of off track. You've been on the ground, so to speak. Collecting dirt and not flourishing. God in his grace wants to lift, wants to lift you up a little bit today. So that you can do what? You can be everything that he has invested for you to be. To grow, to prosper, to be healthy in Him. In Him. This is not a guilt passage. This is a grace passage. This is a goodness of God's grace passage that the gardener lifts us up from the ground. Why? That every branch that bears fruit He prunes. I've got a little shrub and I have to make sure I clean away some of the dead leaves because I read that you can't leave dead leaves on there. That a you know, they don't prosper health and they can hurt the... So, hey, he, he may prune our lives. Hebrews chapter, was it 12, says, Don't despise the discipline of the Lord because he only disciplines his children. Don't go around spanking other people's kids. If you want to see a homicide, just do that. No, sonship, relationship, the father... The pruning. The pruning is not condemnation. The pruning is not rejection. The pruning is not, all right, you're done. You're out of here. And if that's the way God works, how should we as a church family think to those that are falling on the ground? What do we, should we do? If we love one another, what should we do? We should come alongside, lift them up so they can do what? Grow, prosper, get healthy. Right? Right? Let's pray.